0: Welcome for the first time to Monster Kid Radio, the podcast devoted to the classic and sometimes not-so-classic monster movies of yesteryear. I am your host, writer-producer, Derek M. Cook. This is episode number 128 of the podcast, and we are talking about 1966's Destination Inner Space that has one of the coolest monsters I've ever seen. I'm serious. I mean that. I love the monster in this movie. You know who else loves the monster in this movie? Christopher Page from Orphaned Entertainment, and Stephen D. Sullivan, the author of books like White Zombie and Daikaiju Attack. Now, we started talking about this movie in the last episode of Monster Kid Radio a couple of days ago, and we're going to continue our discussion, talk a little bit more about the cast, and Steve's going to tell us all about his moon pool in this episode of the show. We're going to get to all of that here in a second. First, I want to say... Big thanks to the band Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion. That was their music that you heard opening the show. It's the song Safari Zone. It's from their EP Caught Dead. That was released earlier this year. Go look them up over at ghostscorpion.bandcamp.com and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. You're going to hear the song in its entirety at the end of this episode. You can find links to them over at our website at monsterkidradio.net. That's where you've got everything Monster Kid Radio related. A link to our YouTube page, our Flickr album, our Live 365 radio station, as well as a link to our Patreon page. This is where you can become a patron of Monster Kid Radio, and I'll tell you all about that at the end of the show. You can also find us on Facebook, and if you have any information or anything that you want to share with us here on Monster Kid Radio, any thoughts on anything that we've talked about in the past, or even on this episode, you can email me at monsterkidradio at gmail.com or pick up the phone and call 503-479-5657. That's 503-479-5MKR. You can leave comments on our website. You can talk about the episode with other listeners of Monster Kid Radio between episodes on Facebook, Or you can just think real hard and maybe I'll get some telepathic signals from you and I'll respond to your feedback on a future episode of Monster Kid Radio. You know, I'm eager to get deeper into Destination Outer Space. talk about the rest of the cast, talk about the monster and just the overall thoughts about the film. We're going to get to that. But first, I'm going to play a couple of more trailers from some other monster movies that are going to come up in our conversation. I've kind of enjoyed playing some old school monster movie trailers, and I think that's going to be a regular thing here on Monster Kid Radio. So why don't we do that? And then we're going to get to Christopher Page and Stephen D. Sullivan right about now.
1: Cato strikes with the deadly art of gung fu. The black beauty travels into the tunnel of death. And Britt Reed is delivered into the hands of the enemy by the Green Hornet. For these and other action-packed scenes, tune in on the Green Hornet.
2: Everyone in the theater, hold on, family, to his seat, please. <laughs> Stop it! Stop it! I'm Vincent Price. What an earthly horror did that girl gaze upon? What manner of incredible thing walked beneath that hood? It would be unfair at this time to show you any more of what went on in that laboratory where a man actually dared to play God. So fantastic, words can't begin to describe it. You must see it with your own eyes to believe it. When the fly comes your way. It
1: isn't like any other fly I've ever seen. the fly. I've killed Andre please help me call the police and
2: the charge can only be murder.
1: there were no mistresses I had no lovers
2: why did you kill him?
1: God don't let it get out
2: Inspector Inspector it's in the garden come quickly as God is my witness I saw the thing it's unbelievable I shall never forget that scream as long as I live <laughs> the fly's on its way Watch out for it. It's far beyond anything your mind could ever conceive.
3: A moon pool is literally an open pool of water in your underwater habitat, and it looks like just a pool in the floor, but if you dive into it, it actually goes out into the sea, and the reason it works in this and in the abyss and in uh, 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea and any other place you see it is because the air pressure inside the station or the submarine actually keeps the water from flooding that compartment this is the first time when I first saw this movie on television back in the 1970s or maybe late sixties, this was the first time I had ever seen a moon pool. And I was like, how does that work? That's, that's amazing. <laughs> you walk, you walk from the wet to the dry and you jump into this thing. and suddenly you're, you know, 60 or a hundred feet underwater. How is that happening? And it's really cool. And they have two of them in this film. They have one, that's in the sea lab and they have another one that's in the alien flying saucer.
0: And that's your science lesson for this episode of monster kid. Ra- <laughs> <laughs> the
3: cool thing about the moon pool is not only is it kind of a cool way for the characters to enter and exit the scene because it's very quick and it doesn't require an airlock, but it's also gives the monster access to the station where suddenly we get, so, you know, some of the really, Oh my God, the monster's here because it just came out of this pool in the floor. And uh, this film has a couple of really good jump scares, and hopefully it didn't just ruin any of them. But there's been yeah. a couple of moments where suddenly there's the monster. And as a kid, I was like, wow, there's a monster. <laughs> 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 and that's one of the reasons I love this film. Because if you can make me jump as a child and scared as a child, that's going to carry over into, into my appreciation as an adult, the same way it does in the, the original Fly, when the – the fly's head is revealed.
4: <laughs> yeah, exactly.
3: I saw that as a kid and it just freaked me out. <laughs> it was like, ah, flee the room. <laughs> this isn't quite that uh, flee the room thing, but it certainly was a holy cow that really scared me. All right. Like the the head popping out in the of the the ruined boat in Jaws. It's like, whoa. <laughs> So uh, so I love I love Destination Inner Space for that.
0: You know, as, as rough as some of the dialogue is, I and I love the character interactions on this, I love Wayne, yeah, I mentioned Wayne before, I love that every five minutes or so we're reminded that that other guy's name is Maddox because I keep saying it. Yeah. Maddox is <laughs> <Maddox, it's that. laughs> I, and,
3: I yeah. love the name Maddox because it's not something you hear, it's not a name you run across a lot in a movie. And it's kind of a, Macho, sounding, oh, man yeah. of action kind of thing, which, which completely fits Mike Road, as far as I'm concerned.
4: Oh, absolutely. Hugh Maddox, too. they got to throw in and give him a nice first name like Hugh. Hugh Maddox. Right.
3: Yeah. <laughs> Hugh Maddox. It's very uh, kind of World War II kind of name.
4: Mm -hmm. Yeah, we should talk about him right now, because people might not recognize the name, but they will recognize this man's voice. Oh, yeah.
3: He has one of the most famous voices, in certainly in all of television, because Mike Rode was the voice of Race Bannon on Johnny Quest, which is the best television cartoon ever.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So Steve has spoken. (laughs) There you go. It is.
3: There is no dispute about this. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and he was also the voice of Xandor on uh, the Herculoids, which is another one great of my cartoon. favorites.
4: Yeah. Yep.
3: yep. Love yep. that love that series. And the voice of Reed Richards on the original Fantastic Four series and just tons of other stuff. You you guys got have some favorites
4: that I haven't hit? Now, like I said, Herculoids is one of my favorites. That was one of those ones where I'm, that I still remember now. And I'll, I'll watch today and just kind of be giddy because I remember watching it as a kid. <laughs> Fantastic Four, I've always been a fan. Of course, like you said, Johnny Quest. And then, then he's thrown in his voice for the new Scooby-Doo movies. He's, he's appeared on TV on many different series. He was on an episode of Doctari. Uh, I think he was in the Wild Wild West.
0: Yep. As you can see
3: from this, he's a handsome, really kind of manly guy. In fact, if they had cast a live-action Johnny Quest movie in the 1960s when it was originally done, he could have been Race Bannon. He'd bleach his hair white. He's got the physical presence for it as well as the voice.
4: Yeah, I was actually surprised to not see him in more actual camera, you know, on-screen appearances. I mean, most of his stuff is voice work and a few TV series. I I shouldn't say that most of. He did appear in many different uh, television series. But I'm really surprised he didn't have a bigger career in film as being that macho leading man. Right. Because he has the look. He has the voice. It's kind of like, why wasn't he?
3: Why wasn't he a, a huge leading man star? Exactly. And I I have no idea because it seems like after the 60s, he didn't appear in his own presence as a human being. He was almost exclusively a voice actor, and he was brilliant at it. But that's all he did for most of the last part of his career. And he lived, he was born in 1918, and he just died last year. Yeah, So he lived for 95 years. (laughs) (laughs) And a huge chunk of that was taking up doing voices for cartoons. Sadly, he's kind of, he's something of an enigma. I have a friend, Mark Ivenier, who works in television and cartoons specifically. And a couple of years back, before Mike Rode died, Mark knows everybody in cartoon animation, pretty much. A couple of years back, I wrote to him, because I, I knew Rode was still alive, and I, or at least I believed he was, and I said, Mark, do you know where this guy is? So I can get him a note that just says I really appreciate all the cartoon work he did. I'd like to thank you for it. And Mark was like, I have no idea where he is. No one knows where he is. He just he retired in nineteen in the start of the nineteen eighties, and then nobody knew where he was. Literally until he died <laughs> last year. So which is sad. Sad in a way because he did great work. It would have been nice if uh, the fans could could know about it now watch having said that someone's going to say oh i met him at a convention two years ago
0: yeah a quick scanning through the message boards over at the imdb kind of implies that he was a very private person in his older you know as as he got along and he really didn't want to get too involved in any of that so it's unfortunate well i mean if that's what he wanted then great but it's unfortunate that you know so many people were impacted by his voice, because he had such a career in cartoons. And like you guys were saying, he had such a rugged look. He really could have gone on to do leading man type stuff and have a career in front of the camera as well.
3: But it's great that he's in this, because this is kind of the prime of his career. And his kind of macho and deep voice is a perfect play off of Scott Brady's. The two of them, you could really see them button heads together. It, it really works.
4: It does. Absolutely.
3: And even if the, um, the tragic secret in their past, there was a guy on the a board that pointed out, you could never have that happen in real life and not have the, the Navy investigating the hell out of it and determining blame. <laughs> that's true. <laughs> even though that might be true. You buy it. When the two of them are doing this on screen, that's, that's another one of those, oh, the writing isn't quite as good as it could be. Thanks. So not to keep dumping on the writer (laughs) 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 because you buy it on screen. But then if you think about it a little bit, uh, you'd have to.
0: It works for the movie, though, while you're watching the movie for that, what, 80 minutes or whatever. It works. Right. You know, and I think it works, again, because of the performers, you know, Brady and Road. It's like, you know, when I was a kid, you could buy like the two spark rocks that you bang together. They spark. Mm -hmm, You know, and that's exactly what these two guys are doing. They're these two hard characters, you know, they're great. And they keep button heads and sparking every time.
3: Right. And then, you know, at some point they have the big confrontation and everything kind of falls apart for a moment. But then I love this kind of early instance of man law. (laughs) (laughs) Then then Wade is like, ah, forget it. Let's let's move on. (laughs) And they're like, all right. We're working together now. We've hated each other for 20 years, but now we're okay.
0: <laughs> and now I think I can love you.
3: <laughs> <Yeah>.
0: <laughs> oh, man.
3: But that does bring us to the, the female members of the cast. And there are two. There's Sherry North, who is kind of a, a bombshell movie star.
0: And mm-hmm. then there's
3: w- Wendy Wagner. So uh, we, why don't we talk about them a little bit? Yeah. And I'm Wendy guessing Christopher Wagner. wants
0: to talk about Wendy Wagner first, based Me on too. what I just heard. <laughs>
4: <laughs> uh, she definitely a highlight in this film. I just found her absolutely beautiful. The camera loved her, and she so is. did the cameraman. There was uh, there was always seemed to be that <laughs> occasional extra few seconds on a pan as she would swim by. The camera seemed to kind of just hang on her legs for an extra second or two <laughs> <laughs> right. before, uh, before yeah. it would move on.
3: And that's one of the reasons you know it's really her doing the diving, right? Because yeah, you look, it you know, those are her legs.
4: <laughs>
3: yeah. <laughs> can't see her face, can't see her hair, can't see much of anything under the scuba gear except her legs. And those are her legs. And boy, she had lovely legs. She's she was very a really lovely. interesting She's kind of, um, interesting character, too. Sadly, she died very early. Uh, she was about my age, which is almost 55. She was 55 or 56 when she died of cancer. Um, yeah, and,
4: and died on my birthday, too. That's sad. Uh,
0: <laughs> man,
3: that, that sucks. <laughs> She's wow. most famous for me and for anyone of my generation as Lenore Case from The Green Hornet. Yes, right? that Green Hornet, the one with Bruce Lee. She was the female lead.
4: The good the- Green Hornet?
3: Yeah, the the, 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 well, I mean, there, there was the, um, you know, there were the, the serials and that kind of stuff. Those aren't that bad. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> what other but, green yeah, hornets are there? I mean, come on. The,
3: the green hornet <laughs> with Van Williams and Bruce Lee, the one yeah. that everyone wishes they would bring out on DVD. And maybe now that they're doing the Batman series, they will. But she was the female lead in that. And that's where I kind of, as a kid, kind of fell in love with her. She was one of those oh God, she's beautiful. Maybe not as beautiful as Julie Newmar's Catwoman or, <laughs> or Craig as Batgirl, but she's gorgeous. And she is gorgeous. And she apparent
4: And not to uh you know take away from her actual uh, skills as an actress, I think she does a fantastic job inner space too. I mean she you know she is the professional diver. She seems to be the professional diver. She knows what she's talking about. She comes across as being incredibly competent, probably with the exception of the I think I could love you stuff that she has to spout, probably one of the more realistic uh, between the two women
0: characters. I agree.
3: she She has a life beyond, there's that test now, whether a female character has purpose beyond being a romantic object for one of the male characters. Sherry North's character pretty much doesn't. In theory, she's a scientist, but it's clear from the get-go that she and, and Wayne are attracted. Whereas Wendy Wagner and Mike Rode, they start off antagonistic to each other. And it's only kind of the tin dialogue that doesn't make that kind of an interesting, antagonistic, attracted thing, which they try to do later with the worst line of dialogue in the whole thing, where after everything is blown up, she's turns to this broken man and says, I had never thought much of you before, but now I think I could love you. And yeah. all of us went, <laughs> really? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I feel bad for her having to deliver that line. <laughs> yeah, but, but she goes for it and she tries to sell it and it almost works. And if it were written just a little better, <laughs> it would work. But she had a really interesting kind of life being kind of an adventurous kid and raised, I think her her dad was a diver or swimming coach or something like that.
4: And so yeah, she grew but, up in the water, right? Yeah. He was an Olympic swimmer and diving coach. Yeah. So she grew up around the water. She grew up diving. So it just was natural for her. And like you had said, Steve, she, she began working as a, a stunt woman for a sea hunt. She was a, the double for, um, uh, I don't think she was doubling one of the men,
3: was she? I think she was doing like all of the female divers.
4: <laughs> well,
3: the, uh, yeah. I, it, the uh,
0: mentions, you know, she did double Lloyd Bridges, but that seems like a stretch.
3: Yeah,
4: I I think that's probably not true, but I could I suppose I could be wrong. Right? I, maybe if you put a, if you put her actually in a full suit, maybe I uh, who yeah, knows potentially yeah yeah maybe.
3: But in any case, she was she was a stunt woman who also was an actress, and uh, anybody that that can do both of those things has a, I have a great deal of respect for because both are really hard and to do both of them and to do them well and at the, the kind of high level of competence that she achieved mm-hmm. that that's pretty cool. She is one of those people you would think if we're, she were still with us she would be doing conventions today.
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. To oh, meet her sure.
3: and talk about this stuff with her. And that's one of the frustrating things about this. We were talking earlier about how little information there seems to be about The production of this film. And the sad fact is that all the principles, I believe, of it are dead. Yeah. There is no, you know, there's not a director, there's not a writer, there's not a star that we can talk to and say what's going on, what happened in this film, with maybe one exception. And the one exception is James Hong, who played Ho Li, the Chinese Cliche'd. Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> when I saw the name in the opening credits, when I started watching the movie this uh, last night, I was like, "Okay, that's not the same James Hong. It can't be." And then but he, he turns the up watching. James oh Kong. my! He's like, "Okay, is he wow. like
4: 125 now or something?" <laughs>
3: <laughs> IMDb said he, says he was born in 1929.
0: I actually had a chance to meet him, uh, was it not last year, but maybe the year before at a comic book convention here in Portland? They brought him in, and of course, he didn't talk about destination airspace. Everybody wanted to talk about big trouble and all that, but right wow, I mean, the guy's still doing the convention thing, he's still with it, he's still friendly and approachable and likes to have he's fun with people. In
3: production right now,
0: yep, which unbelievable. Is
3: amazing. So, if if you still have that connection, if any of our listeners have the connection with him, we'd like to. Get him on the show and oh. <laughs> talk to him about Destination Inner Space <laughs> and not just talk to him about the incredibly awesome, one of the best movies ever, Big Trouble in Little China.
0: I, I don't know if he'd want to talk about I don't know if I was James Hong if I'd want to talk about Destination Inner Space because he does kind of play this stereotypical kind of has-a-hard-time-with-English type of character. And I did find myself cringing a little bit.
4: It is a little cringeworthy. Yeah. Yep. It is.
3: And that's that's another one of these things where – Honestly, the, the trouble with the writing shows through. It's not inventing anything new or doing anything new with the character. It's just repleting cliches that the screenwriter has seen somewhere else.
0: Yeah,
4: I've He doesn't sh- even need to be there. He provides absolutely nothing to the story. Except a brief supposed comic relief moment.
3: But
0: the fish exactly. thing. Yeah, and they don't eat fish because, yeah.
3: We're underwater and we don't eat fish and that's what the commander wants. But how do I get fish? I'm underwater. Yeah, that was as funny as it, I just made it sound.
0: <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> <laughs> but he does wear the chef's hat because, as we talked about when I had uh, somebody on the show, when I had Mike Bear on the show to talk about Forbidden Planet, no matter where you are, if you have a chef, he's got to wear the chef's hat. absolutely. Yep. Always have to have that. And is it a parrot he has on his shoulder? What does he have on his shoulder half the time?
4: Did he have a parrot or a monkey? Was, was it a, a monkey?
0: Parrot? Was it a bird?
4: I think it was a parrot. But I not well, That's how memorable it was. It was.
0: Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> exactly.
3: And that's how necessary it was to the, to the story. Exactly. So anyway, he's still alive, but pretty much all the rest of these principles are gone. And he's not even a principal character. He's, you know, he's at the end of the casserole. Basically. Yeah. And that's a shame because honestly, I want to hear some stories about how this worked. And, and again, if people out there, you've encountered this in an old issue of Famous Monsters or For Monsters Only or Castle of Frankenstein or in a book, You know, write us, write uh, any one of us at our sites or or call into Derek's call-in line and tell us about it uh, because it would be nice to know and not just to have to guess why they spent clearly so much attention and time on the creature suit and so little on the actual miniatures.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, the miniatures, yeah.
4: I mentioned this earlier that some of the miniatures were a little ropey. But some, I thought, worked really well. Now, yeah, the aquasphere, I think they call it, the, the crucifix underwater, uh, <laughs> always looked like it was sitting in the bottom of somebody's bathtub. Yeah. But there was occasional when they had the, the saucer flying around, looked really good and almost looked like it was legitimately remote control or had you know, some sort of control to it and not just, okay, push it in the water, which is kind of what you were expecting.
2: The
3: saucer is clearly some kind of a remote, a pretty sophisticated remote-controlled underwater thing. It is not being pulled on wires, and it is not being just shoved in front of the camera. It's actually maneuvering and doing stuff. Now, the big problem with all of the effects is that they never seem to take into account the scale of the stuff they
4: were shooting against. Yes, exactly. The saucer would have worked almost in every scene that it's in, with the exception of when they had it sitting there, and it was kind of spewing out some bubbles, and these bubbles looked like they were a mile across.
3: Right. When you start to get shots with the miniatures against a real background, all of the rocks and the weeds and the bottom of the ocean and everything completely blows any sense of scale that they're trying to get with this stuff. And you can make fun of the crucifix shape of the sea the lab, the underwater lab, but at the same time, as a practical object, that wasn't really badly designed. No, nope, no. It was you know, you could see someone building an undersea thing in that way with all the modules attached to each other off of a central core. It makes sense to build that way.
0: The design of it did work, yeah. You're right, but but the scale, I think. is But the
3: photography of it and the scale of it, it's just not not working. You're never going to mistake the underwater special effects in this for, say, Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea, which is contemporary with it. Because the people working on the special effects with that until it kind of got goofy, like Lost in Space did later on, (laughs) they had a sense of how to make their submarines and whatever they were working with underwater look scale-appropriate. And sadly, that's one of the areas where this film falls down. Plus, one of the coolest saucers in all of filmdom. Minus, they filmed it so it looks like a toy. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) 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 Well, I think... The acceptance of these miniatures and the scale issues and all that, we're prepped for that from the very beginning because the movie, once we get through the opening credits with the boats coming across the water and all sorts of different angles, uh, you have the guy going down in the diving bell. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you have the shot of Wayne in the diving bell, and it's a very static, steady shot. No problem. You go outside, and that thing's just wobbling, going up and down, <laughs> and whatever. You know, it's like there's no yeah. way. Right, so because it's probably
3: smaller than a Campbell soup can. Yeah, it? exactly.
0: Yeah. So your your prep on for the wires this. is
3: wrong, and it just mm-hmm. it has no weight.
0: So as soon as you see that, you know what you're in for for the miniatures, and it's an easy sell after that because you know. <laughs>
3: Right. That's what and you're going to have to do. But I can forgive that because I see what they're doing and I'm used to, I've seen voyage to the bottom of the sea and I've seen sea hunt and I've seen a lot of other undersea movies that had money and I can see that they're trying, they're going for this and I'm going to forgive them that. Yeah. It's a miniature. We all know it's a miniature. If they'd shot it better, if they would waited it better, it could have been more convincing, but <laughs> But thank God they took that money and they put it into the monster suit because the monster suit <laughs> is awesome. There you go. Yeah. Can we talk about the monster suit just, just briefly? I think it's a good sure.
0: point. Yeah, we need to bring it up because it's a great looking monster. The design of it, you mentioned earlier Richard Cesarino you know, being the person who created the amphibian, this thing, and it looks so good. I mean, it's got a static mouth, but whatever. I mean, it moves great. The colors are awesome.
3: It almost looks like, it reminds me of, there's a, I think they called it a chimera. There's a, an episode of Johnny Quest, which is the Beast from the Sea. That, that's not exactly the right title, but it's about an undersea monster that the Quest family encounters aboard a freighter. It looks a little bit like that, It's which probably puzzles everyone except Johnny Quest fans. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's kind of a hulking humanoid body that's heavier on the top, and it has a big orange fin down its back and fins under its arms. It has huge clawed hands and feet, which it can swim with because it's built over a practical diving suit. Kind of a hump back. And the face is just wonderfully nightmarish. It's almost
4: a piranha face with goggly eyes. The first time you see it is one of, you, uh, one of the jump scares that you kind of re- referenced earlier, Steve. And it's just suddenly you turn around and boom, monster face right in your face. And I admit it, you kind of jump. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, now, it is a great looking suit. I mean, a lot of time and effort obviously went into this thing to incorporate the diving suit. Uh, the exterior is beautiful. I mean, it looks like individual scales. It's not just things painted on or anything. It has this gorgeous fin. The feet, which are, obviously, there are a few moments where you see it swimming and it looks like it's just painted uh, diver flippers.
3: Yeah, it's but, built around. It's certainly built over diver
4: footwear. Sure, but no, it looks fantastic. And unfortunately, I think there was a few moments because of how they designed it, and because it was built around a diving suit, it does make it a little unwieldy when it's out of the water. Mm-hmm. And you can catch a few moments where, if you look careful, you can you look right through the creature's mouth and and see his chest. Right. Or uh, yeah. I think at one at one point when he's attacking the surface vessel, the monster's wearing socks.
3: Uh, You know, and there's also times when you can see – it has these big goggly eyes that are very scary-looking, kind of reddish. If the light hits them just the right way, you can kind of see the guy behind or his uh, swim goggles or something behind them a little bit. Right.
4: But, I mean, it was designed to be an underwater monster. It was designed for these underwater moments, and as far as that goes, it's spectacular.
3: I would say easily my second favorite underwater monster design ever
4: wow
3: right behind the creature from the black lagoon i like this substantially better than the creature knockoff in uh the monster squad i think this is it's really that good it it puts uh the she creature and it puts the humanoids from the deep i think it it's way ahead of all of those guys and I love The She-Creature.
1: From writings less than a hundred eyes have seen comes the experiences of The (laughs) She-Creature. Brought to screen life by Chester Morris, Marla English... Kathy Downs, Lance Fuller, Tom Conway, Frida Innescourt, and Ron Randall. It's an adventure into the occult such as few people have known and only those who see it can believe.
2: You're not going for
1: that supernatural hokum of his. I don't really know what I'm going for. I know he's a killer. Now you are traveling back to time and space. Farther. Farther back. Back. Under his spell, she was both herself and another being. The she-creature seeking life sustenance from the stolen heartbeats of others. She was a woman born to be loved, and two men wanted her. One a man whose powerful mad mind controlled her every reflex except her love. No! The other, willing to fight any odds for her love. You've been living in shadows. I want to bring you back to life. Society dances to hide the hysterical terror caused by their sudden intimacy with death. Forever closer comes the she-creature.
0: It is a great-looking creature. I mean, everybody knows about my my love and adoration for a creature from the Black Lagoon and all that, and that's going to be my top. But I think this is right there. Is it my second favorite? Maybe, because I like Monster of Pietras Blancas as well, even though that's not really underwater too much. Right. I I do love the design in this. And the underwater swimming, beautiful. I think, though, it also worked on land when it was knocked out, when they had it tranked. Mm-hmm. And you could see the actor inside the suit really trying to give it some motion limited in a limited fashion. Its hands are trying to move a little bit. So, I mean, it was a fully articulated suit. Right. And I do appreciate that as well. For what was clearly a lower budget movie, they dumped a ton of time and money into making this suit. Christopher mentioned it's not just painted on scales. I mean, you can see when the hand's moving around and all that, those scales are separating and they're moving as individual pieces. Right. It's a yeah, wonderful I mean, design. I, it looks so good. And the face, you said nightmarish. Yeah. I mean, that's spot on.
3: Unless we can find someone to talk to, we can't really know how much they spent on it or in time or money, but it looks like a million bucks. It's a great-looking suit. Yeah, today you could put animatronics and make the mouth move and all that kind of stuff.
0: Oh, it'd be CG today.
3: And today you'd probably also reshoot the couple of places where it looks a little clumsy. And you'd probably coach the, uh, the swimming guy that was inside it on how to move like a monster better, because especially in one of the final confrontations, he's not quite monster enough for me. He he looks more kind of, he moves more like a human than, than having his own kind of monster physiology and way of moving. But those things aside, it's a great monster. And that's one of the reasons I think monster kids have been really interested in this film for my, well, my entire life ever. ever, Once you see a picture of this, you want to know
0: what the heck is that from? It looks really cool. I was thrilled to see it. Like I said, I saw a picture of it in the back of one of my monster books, but it was a black and white photo. Mm-hmm. So to see it in color, I think the color choices are I mean that red fin. Right. It just looks great.
3: It's really a bold choice and it's not a choice that you would expect to make on an underwater creature.
0: Right. But it's not an underwater creature, it's an alien. So who it's, knows, you know.
3: And it's an amphibian too, so it, So it, who
0: knows, yeah.
3: Yeah. But it works, and it works brilliantly, and it probably, it adds. I think it adds to the monster's appeal because it's not just one color. If the fins had been blue or green, in some ways I don't think it would have seemed as real
4: as kind of this outrageous
3: orange fin and, and webbing.
4: Yeah, it really stands out, especially when it's inside the aquasphere, which has very plain, drab walls uh, you put that creature in there, and it is front and center in the screen, and it's a lot to do with those colors. If you had a muted color scheme, yeah, it wouldn't have been as frightening because, it, would, frankly, it would just blend in with everything else.
3: Right. It kind of almost looks like a, if you took a lionfish, if you know what those are, or a scorpionfish, sure. they're also called. And if you, if you made one of those into a human being, that's kind of the the look of the entire suit. And those are kind of frightening looking creatures. And then you add the bright colors onto it, and you're like, yeah, these bright colors are warning you, stay away from this guy. He's bad. (laughs) Exactly. And he's a vanguard of an alien invading army. Maybe.
0: Maybe. Potentially, yes.
3: I actually like the fact that even by the end of the movie, they're not really sure why any of this happened. There's a saucer from somewhere, and Commander Wayne says, it's from another planet. But you never (laughs) see the saucer in the air. And you never get any kind of a sense of, and they don't, where it came from, why it's here. Are these guys fleeing a plague on their own planet? Are they here to take over? We know there's a whole bunch of them in this ship, all in suspended, frozen animation. And I love that, too. I, I actually really like the alien ship, which is basically just a circular room with these kind of tiny triangular doors that they push the monster capsules out so they can thaw and then go out and, and explore the world or kill or whatever they're designed to do. I really like that. The only thing I don't like about it is the, the bubblegum machine, the cop light <laughs> in the center of, of the roof that's supposed to be like a heat lamp, but it actually just looks like a, you know, a cherry top from a cop car. Yeah. And when the characters are standing amid this thing and there's this cherry top up there on the ceiling and Commander Wayne's going, well, it's clearly an alien vehicle. <laughs> like, <laughs> an alien vehicle with uh, a piece on the roof from Menards, apparently.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, if Wayne's going to tell you something, though, you know it's true. You're going to believe it because it's it's Wayne. I mean, Commander Wayne. Come on with that voice and that. I mean, come on. Oh, yeah. If he's, he's decided it. it's from outer space. I mean, they rule out Not the possibility. Really totally selling it every oh, yeah. time he talks. And he, I mean, he rules out the possibility of it being Russian. I mean, that does come up for about five minutes it could, or maybe like five seconds. It could be a Russian design. Well, I don't know about that. It's alien. Okay. <laughs> <Yep>.
4: <laughs> Clearly right, yeah. extraterrestrial. Clearly. I know these things. <laughs> yeah.
0: <Right>. So <laughs> that's cool.
3: It's, it's kind of nice in some ways that they rule it out. Although, again, a more deft screenplay might have actually – Played up that uncertainty a little more rather than just dismissing it immediately
0: you know the writing issues aside some of the holes and some of the awkwardness i loved this movie and i'm really glad that you, know, you both wanted to talk about it on monster kid radio because he gave me an opportunity to actually sit down watch it for fun start to finish and just have a blast with it this is something i'm going to go back and rewatch, and i'm going to be constantly watching for a better version of this movie now down yeah, the line, I, like you've been doing with The Screaming Skull for years, Steve. I really want <laughs> a copy of Destination Inner Space, a nice, crisp print of it to turn up somewhere.
3: It's been one of my quests, too. This one is actually probably ahead of The Screaming Skull in and, and things that I'd like to have a really great print of. Uh, because then you'll be able to see all the flaws of the monster suit. <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> None of the flaws matter, because like Derek said, I love this film wooden dialogue and cheesy miniatures and all the other flaws aside, I love this film. It is one of my favorite monster movies.
4: It has quickly become one of mine. It was one that I have to think I must have seen it at some point when I was younger. Uh, I think, Steve, you said they used to run it on TV a lot. Yeah, late night. So I'm sure I saw it when I was a kid. But I, because just real brief glimpses of it here and there just seemed a little familiar to me. But this was one where I was just flipping through the Amazon Prime, and oh, this sounds interesting, so I'll watch it, and just had so much fun. I found it so interesting, and then watching it a second time, still just as much fun. So yeah, this will definitely be one that I'll just dial up or throw in every now and again, just for the heck of it, just because there is so much in here to like.
3: And it's unique in the fact that there are virtually no underwater monster movies except the that are vaguely like this era from this era. But this was in a time when you had Sea Hunt on TV and you had Voyage to the Bottom of the Sea and you had Flipper, and it was not that long after the invention of the scuba, the aqualung, and there was kind of this renaissance of undersea things on television. Oh, and we got Thunderball, which is uh, yeah. <laughs> the great underwater sequences shot by Rico Browning. Mm-hmm. the James Bond thing. And that this was all in the same window of time in the middle 1960s, late, you know, starting a little bit in the 50s, but mostly in the middle of 1960s. People seemed really fascinated by underwater stuff. And this movie is an artifact of that time and I think that helped that helps to make it even more special.
0: I think you're right. It's, again, it's something that Christopher and I were talking before we started recording. Something we were talking about before we started recording. And Christopher's brought up on his podcast. I've brought it up over the years as well. One of the things about watching a lot of these older movies is you get to see where things were in a different time and a different place. And to see where they were in terms of making these types of movies back in the 60s. To see some of the way the men and women interacted, the way the monster designed, the choices that were made. It's just a fascinating thing to do when you look at these older movies and you know it kind of brings an extra level of enjoyment for me and I don't know if I'm kind of going off on a tangent here and and not really relevant to this film but it's one of these things that I enjoy for me uh, the most about watching these older movies is to see some of this stuff and putting myself in the the headspace of creators and the audience of this kind of cinema back then. I mean 1966 you're right and even today I don't think we have enough underwater monster movies. I want more and I want more men in suits like this and Right. This is great.
3: <laughs> I'm always afraid of suggesting this, but you could remake this film
4: today <gasps> and it would be awesome if, if you. Did he, did he say the reword? I think he said the R <laughs> I word. I did. I did because
3: I can't help but want to rewrite that script.
4: Oh, man.
3: <laughs> but there's. it would be wonderful if you could get the actors back and give it a little budget. This could be a really cool modern movie if they didn't screw it up and do it all with CGI and.
0: Yeah. Kind
3: of they just would do a practical effects movie the same way.
0: Yeah. With
3: today's technology, it'd be really cool. But speaking to a little to Derek's talking about giving you a glimpse into that time period, I find that always fascinating too. Now for me, I'm about to turn 55, so I'm a little older than you guys. For me, it's actually a glimpse back into my childhood when mm. I can remember watching Boys to the Bottom of the Sea on TV during its first run. And I can remember there's something about that time period that's really kind of interesting in just the way it feels. Yeah, men and women's relationships were not nearly as egalitarian as they are today, but it's always interesting looking back to watch them kind of struggling to figure out how men and women should really interact now in the modern age. And yeah, yeah, people are still. Some people are still struggling only with that today. But you know what I mean? It's <laughs> it's like a glimpse. It's like the women have jobs, but uh, they still have to be the romantic interests, You know, so it's it's not quite it's not quite there yet. But but, but you know,
0: it's far movie, from though. the
3: fact. Commander Wayne has the kind of you get the sense that like, oh yeah, there are women here. But then he's like, women here, and women shouldn't be doing man's job. There's a little of that. But then there's a little bit of like, yeah, this is much better than working on a submarine. There are women here.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, and at the very end of the movie, too, I mean, th- there's this one scene early on with Wayne and uh, Sherry North's character with Brady and North interacting. Well, I had brothers. Well, I had sisters, you know, and you can try this approach or that approach or whatever. But at the very end, she's the one that makes the big move relationship. Right. Yeah,
4: she's the aggressor.
0: Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which yeah. was kind of nice to see.
3: Well, exactly. Exactly. And and that's, you know, struggling to figure that out and saying, yeah, it's okay. It's okay that her character is the aggressor there, and it's okay that the Wendy Wagner character maybe knows a little bit more about diving than the men are letting her play, <laughs> right?
0: Exactly.
4: Yeah, that was and something I just, that really appreciated as far as the roles of the women is she was a photographer. The other Sherry North's character was a scientist. and. Not once did the men just go turn to them and go, why don't you go make coffee?
3: <laughs> no, they did try to protect them, those two, to some extent. But at the same time, every time they told Wendy Wagner she couldn't tag along with the men, she was like, screw that, and followed right. the men. And then they were like, oh, I guess <laughs> she's coming along, and it was no longer an issue, right? Right. And that's kind of cool. It was like, okay, she's asserting herself because she clearly knows how to do this better than they do.
0: That's true. That's true. Now, do either one of you guys follow the Universal Monster Army message board?
4: I mm. do not. No. Nope.
0: Nope. Back in, I think it was January, somebody posted some pictures. And they believe, and kind of looking at their story, looking at the pictures, that they actually got their hands on one of the props, one of the subs from this film. And or I saw they, something about that yeah. somewhere.
3: I don't remember where
0: and they got okay. their hands on the sub prop and I don't know if they've restored it or what they're doing with it, but you know, they did a lot of screenshots and comparisons and a little bit of research and figure out what the provenance of this thing was. I mean, I believe it's probably one of the sub props. I think it's kind of cool that, you know, somebody out there has the sub prop on the, the two person sub that they had. Mm. So I think that's cool. It I don't is, know what I do with it, but <laughs>
3: it's possible. My guess though is that none of that stuff was made specifically for this movie.
0: Yeah. My guess
3: is they had a stock two-man, no-cockpit, underwater submarine from SeaWorld or SeaLab or some actual place that they rented out for this movie and then gave back to the diving company that it came from.
0: Oh, I agree. I don't think it was made specifically. It's just, I'm sure, they're, they're calling it the sub prop, but it's probably, well, we have this sub that somebody rented for a movie once.
4: Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. I, I got to think there was probably dozens of them around, just oh, uh, yeah. being able to track it down to one particular sub in one particular movie. Now, if they had the alien sub,
0: oh, that would be, that would be amazing. I'd love <laughs> right. to have that.
4: I would love to see that, and I would
3: love to see how it works because watching it in the film, there is no obvious external engines moving that sucker around. It right. looks like a flying saucer underwater moving on its own without submarine screws and without jets or anything you can't see how it's moving it turns but you don't see an I don't see any diving planes moving on it now maybe if we had a blu-ray print of it with perfect clarity we'd all see strings I don't know but in the film it looks very convincingly self-propelled which I think is just wicked
4: cool Oh, absolutely. It's one of the really true joys of watching this film. Like I said, there are these extremes. It's it's the cheesy film with the outstanding creature and outstanding prop. <laughs> and the cheesy dialogue and the really good actors. Exactly.
0: Well, I think it's certainly something people need to see. And oh, we mentioned it's available on Amazon streaming. If you are a prime member of Amazon, you can watch it for free. Uh, otherwise, I think it's whatever their rental price is. I don't know what that is. I'm a prime member, so I don't know what the cost would be. But Cheesy Flix also put out a DVD copy of it. Right. Uh, Cheesy Flix is a company that they're, they're kind of local. Market. They're local to me. Um, they're based here in the Portland, Oregon area, and I've cool. met some of the people involved with it. And I have a handful of cheesy flicks movies myself. It's not always the best print or the best quality or whether or not it's actually legal uh, for some of the <laughs> stuff they put out. If you know, if and I'm you know not, those guys, ask them
3: if they have a better print of this film. <laughs> <laughs> well, chances are see.
0: it's probably a, uh, like a tape master that was used for television like mm-hmm. a one-inch tape or something like that that got converted to DVD. Right,
3: TV. yeah, but that's my guess, too. And for what it's worth, I, I do have the DVD, uh, and the DVD looks very similar to a gray market copy that I already have. In fact, it seems to be the same print, except with the opening title for the production company cut off and cheesy put on instead.
0: Yeah, <laughs> exactly.
3: The Amazon streaming version is a step up from that DVD.
0: That's it's good to know.
3: Massively better, but it is just enough better that I rewatched it again for the third time this week when I was like, "Oh, this looks a little bit better."
4: <laughs> yep, no, nice. it looks great Let me I check mean that I watched her out again. <laughs> it looks great. I watched it through Amazon Prime and I watched it on the forty uh, something inch HD TV And there is no pixelization. It is a little softer. It looks like you're watching a VHS or something maybe. But otherwise, it it looks fantastic.
3: Yeah, I wish they would actually remaster the DVD with whatever they've done the streaming with. Because the DVD has has a little bit of
4: of breakup, a little bit of pixelization.
0: That's a shame. Well, is there anything else you want to say about the movie before we let people go? I mean, I definitely want to give you guys a chance to plug your websites again. But about the film...
4: Yeah, I think we have said it all. We've probably said more than a lot of people ever thought could be said about <laughs> Destination Interspace. But I someone a, needs to say someone needs to talk about this film.
0: I right. think so too.
3: If you go on to uh, Wikipedia, there's a an entry for it and the, at the top of the thing it says this entry may be removed because we're not sure it's it's significant enough to be here. Now, I went in and did some rewriting to try to make it significant enough to be there. But
0: that oh, just, did you...
3: <laughs> the the film is not getting enough respect. I think this is a really good, low-budget science fiction horror picture. And I wish more people knew and loved it. And I wish we knew more about it than yep. we do. I wish... We knew more than we can just piecing together the bios of the people that worked in it. So people should go out and see it and enjoy it. And, uh, you know, if you want to tell the Wikipedia that, yes, this film is worth having on your site, (laughs) it it is significant because it's the first film Sherry North did after she came back from a period of retirement it is a film in which you get to see what Mike Rowe, famous from Johnny quest looks like. It's a film in which Gary Merrill, who is in, we didn't even talk about him as the lead scientist. He is in it and he was in the mysterious Island. You know, it has Wendy Wagner from the green Hornet. There are important things to people that love genre cinema and monster kids, especially in this film. And it's a, it's a hell of a lot of fun. Watch it. Don't, don't think about how cheesy the, some of the underwater effects are and that kind of stuff. Enjoy the cool monster. Enjoy the fact that people are bringing it. The actors are totally bringing it. And everybody in this, that was working on this, they were trying the best, as near as I can tell, they were trying the best they could despite all the budget limitations and other limitations this film had. So go see it. It's worth seeing.
0: Yeah, nobody's phoning it in. This one's got a lot going for it, and I think Steve's right. I think Christopher will agree. It's definitely something people need to see.
4: Yep, absolutely. Go out. Go get it. It's easy enough. Just watch it.
0: And then call in and let me know what you think. Let us know if you like it as much as we do. And then I'll pass that on to Christopher and Steve. Christopher, your website, your podcast is Orphaned Entertainment.
4: Correct, Orphaned Entertainment. Just go to iTunes and look for it. That is going to be the easiest way. You don't need to go find it on our webpage because whatever your podcatcher is, go to iTunes, go to Stitcher. You'll find us there.
0: You're also active on Facebook. You have a Facebook page or group, right?
4: Oh, of course. Yeah. You find us on Facebook where people are more than welcome to come by because we we try to post the the movie that we're going to review that month and try to get some comments or or, or questions about the film going. So uh, always nice to see people show up and uh, discuss the things that we're talking about.
0: Now, I'm going to put this episode out next week. What's the next Show topic for Orphaned Entertainment for our listeners.
4: Okay, well, by the time this episode airs, we should have posted a film or an episode where we are reviewing. I believe it's 1976's Project Kill, starring Leslie Nielsen. Wow, <laughs> it,
3: it, it is a pre-comedy, Dave. Uh,
4: yes, pre-comedy. He is serious, and what blew Lydia and I away is there is some scenes in here. Leslie Nielsen is 50 years old in this film playing the action star and looks every bit of it. So there you go.
0: Wow. All right. Well, I'm looking forward to checking that out. Steve, what's coming up next for you? What's, what's on the horizon?
3: Um, look for the, the print releases of both the Daikaiju attack and tournament of death three in the near future. And, uh, some stuff beyond that that, that, that uh, hasn't quite gelled yet. So we'll have to see. You can find me at StephenDSullivan.com, spelled with a ph like Stephen King, or SDSullivan.com if you want something shorter. And I'm also on Twitter and on uh, Facebook as
4: well. You can find me there.
0: Sounds good, guys. I'm going to have you have you back on again in the future. It was fun to have you on the show, man. If you appreciate, If you enjoyed your stay, Christopher, we'll have you back.
4: Oh, I'd love to. I I hope we didn't – Steve and I didn't get too long-winded for you on this one. Hey, no, you know what? You
0: guys made my job easy. I was just kicking back, letting you guys go. I'm having fun just listening. So hopefully the listeners enjoyed it too.
3: Right. Clearly our love for this film showed through in this podcast, I think.
0: Oh, it's a good one. Thanks, guys.
4: Yep. Thank you, Derek.
0: You know, I already said it a couple of times, and it bears repeating again. Big thanks to Stephen D. Sullivan and Christopher Page for taking some time on a Saturday morning to talk about this awesome monster movie, Destination Interspace. Space. Man, I love this film. I really, really hope that at some point in the future, we find out, one, who owns the rights to the film, and two, that somebody has a really good print of this film. I'd love to see a nice cleaned-up version of this movie, something in the original aspect ratio, something that just has maybe a few more bells and whistles, you know, something that we were talking about off mic. Christopher, Steve, and I was a movie from the 70s that also featured an underwater monster, and that movie is Zat, which really isn't that good, although it's got some charm. It has a lot of problems, but it had a Blu-ray release with all kinds of different kinds of special features. If somebody can put out a special feature-laden version of Zat, I think the world can handle a special feature-laden version of Destination Space on Blu-ray. So, just saying, fingers crossed, maybe that'll happen someday. But in the meantime, I'm going to go back and watch the movie a couple of more times through Amazon Streaming. And I think I need to get my hands on that DVD just so I can have it in my permanent hard copy collection. Also, a special thanks to Christopher because, well, he kind of saved Monster Kid Radio's backside by recording a backup of our conversation. My recording gear, it glitched out. Christopher actually was recording as well. And and because of him, we actually had this episode. So big thanks to Christopher. You know how you can thank him? Go check out his podcast, Orphan Entertainment. Now, the most recent episode of his show has already come out. Project Kill is the movie they covered featuring a buff Leslie Nielsen. Like he said, I've listened to the episode. He and Lydia broke down the movie and made it sound like something that I need to see and probably not for the best of reasons. But it was a great conversation. It's an entertaining podcast. And Stephen E. Sullivan... You know, he keeps harping on the writing of Destination Inner Space, and that's because the brother knows what he's talking about. Head over to his website, sdsullivan.com or com and check out some of his books. He does know how to write, and he does it incredibly well. Two things I want to mention before we wrap up. The Patreon page. We have a Patreon campaign going here at Monster Kid Radio where you can help support the podcast with a monthly pledge, and depending on what level of pledge you make at Patreon, you will get some rewards starting next month in September. That's next week. We'll start honoring the rewards that the patrons deserve here at Monster Kid Radio. Now, the podcast is never going to change. It's still always going to be free. It's still going to be twice a week, every Tuesday and Thursday. But if you are a supporter of Monster Kid Radio through the Patreon campaign, that's patreon.com slash Monster Kid Radio or follow the link in the show notes you're going to get a little extra. You might get your name read in a special thanks section of the podcast or actually see it on a special thanks section of the website. You might get your hands, or I guess more appropriately, your ears on some exclusive content, stuff that comes from the cutting room floor, conversations that we may have had that just didn't make the final cut here on Monster Kid Radio. Depending on what level you support the show, well, that determines your reward level. So go check out those rewards. If nothing else, tell your friends. And second, I wanted to go ahead and mention that we are still planning on moving forward on the Creature from the Black Lagoon spin-off podcast. It's going to be a monthly show. It'll be available in this feed, so you don't have to do anything. If you want to get the Creature show, well just keep your iPod, iTunes, Stitcher, whatever keyed in to Monster Kid Radio. There will be a separate website and feed devoted to just the Creature show as well for people who just want to hear the Creature show, but it's coming. I haven't forgotten. It's on the way. So stay tuned for that. I even have a title picked out, and I'm working on designing the cover art right now. As soon as that's ready to go, I'll unleash that to the Monster Kid Radio listeners who are a part of our Facebook group and Facebook page. And then we'll also put it on monsterkidradio.net down the line. So stay tuned. I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Monster Kid Radio. Well, on any episode of Monster Kid Radio, really. Next week on the show, we're going to go back to Monster Bash. We're going to have another recording from that convention, this time about Abbott and Costello meet Frankenstein, because really, we just cannot get enough of that film here at the podcast. Also, I think we have a recording from a horror host, somebody who's never been on the show before. This was a recording taken from a show. You just have to come back next week to find out who it is. Monster Kid Radio is a registered service mark of Monster Kid Radio, LLC. All original content of Monster Kid Radio by Monster Kid Radio, LLC is licensed under a Creative Commons Attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives, 3.0 unported license. Of course, that doesn't apply to the song Safari Zone. That belongs to the band Beware the Dangers of a Ghost Scorpion. It's from their EP Caught Dead. You can find out more about them over at ghostscorpion.bandcamp.com. Check it out, buy the album, download the songs, and let them know that Monster Kid Radio sent you. Talk to everybody next week.